so we are continuing our series, uh, specifically looking at the Incarnation. <clears throat> we spent the first month, uh, or the last couple of weeks, looking at some of the most unique signs and aspects of the Incarnation. I'll remind you of a couple of these. The first one, we looked at the idea of the Incarnation being restorative that it really was about restoration. And then Russ spoke about the idea of emptying self last week, as he mentioned this morning. He talked a little bit about proximity or presence, and that one of those unique signs of the incarnation is the ability to be present. And today, uh, I get the privilege of talking about what I believe is one of the most unique signs of the incarnation, and it's that of powerlessness. Powerlessness. All right? So let me first define what power means so that we kind of have a working understanding of this this morning. Uh, There are a lot of different definitions for power. The one that I'm going to key in on is, uh, is I believe, the second in the order. And it's the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. The capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or course of events. Maybe a more straightforward, uh, straightforward way of defining power would be the ability to control situations, circumstances, or people. If you have power, then you have the ability to control situations, circumstances, or people. I would contend that we live in a culture, in a lot of ways, that is driven by power. That we as Americans, as humans, are addicted to the idea of having or gaining power. We crave to have power over people. We crave to have power over circumstances. I would say it's one of the fundamental human experiences is searching for and claiming power over things, claiming power over people. There's a well-known motivational theory by a guy, a psychologist named David McLeand, and he says that all human action, despite race, age, gender, or culture is motivated by the needs for either achievement, affiliation, or power. All human action, despite race, age, gender, uh, and culture, is motivated by the needs for either achievement, affiliation, or power. So to say that power is a strong driving force for much of what we do and what we think is probably a, a significant understatement. It's not just a strong driving force. It is one of the three things that forces us to be who we are, to say the things that we say. So the irony of this next question that I will ask you is that we are a predominantly white, predominantly middle to upper class American audience. We don't have many circumstances where we're not in power to at least some degree. But let me ask you this question. Think of a time when you were powerless. Think of a time when you felt utterly powerless. I spent some time this week uh, trying to come up with an instance, and I actually had several different stories that I was going to put in, uh, put into the message this morning and different times, but they never really kind of clicked for me until last night I was driving home. We had some dinner uh, with great family friends of ours, and we were driving home. It was about 10.30. And, uh, and this story came back to mind, and I actually don't know why it did, but, uh, and I, I actually attribute it to maybe the first time uh, in my growth and development that I felt truly, truly powerless. When I was a sophomore in high school, 
my, uh, my dad and I, one of the things that we did as I was growing up, one of the kind of the places of uh, bonding and, and, and common shared experience for us was fishing. He taught me how to fly fish. It continues to be a, a hobby of mine, something I love. Uh, and each year we would go on a fishing trip. And when I was a sophomore, he took me on a fishing trip to Alaska, which was unbelievable. We'd never done anything quite this extravagant. So it was super cool. It was a, like a long weekend. Uh, I believe it was in November or something. And so um, decently cool, but it was okay. And, and we, uh, we went up to uh, Alaska. I couldn't even tell you where exactly we were. Alaska's a pretty big state, and I have no idea where in Alaska we were, but uh, somewhere in that state. And uh, we were going to go halibut fishing. Has anybody been halibut fishing in Alaska here? I'm sure some people have. So it's like, it's kind of a circus out there. There's hundreds and hundreds of people on these guided trips, and uh, they, they have these boats that are just kind of on the shore, and then uh, a huge tractor will pick up the boat while you're in it, and then they just move it into the water, and then you go out into the water. And it's, I mean, it is like they are just pumping money through this place, all these guiding services, getting guys out there to, to fish. And, uh, and so we get in this boat, and uh, I... I don't spend a lot of time in boats. I have no idea how big it is. It's 23 feet. I don't know. I'm making that up. It's, it's not a huge boat, though. Uh, there was no bathroom on the boat. There's no kitchen. It was just pretty much a, a metal boat that we're in with a bunch of fishing, uh, fishing gear on it. And uh, so we go out, and uh, it, we are in the boat for like 40 minutes, not even fishing, like just going out into the ocean. And uh, at this point, I'm beginning to realize that I have kind of a fear of the open ocean. Like, we lost sight of the shore, and uh, we're just out in the ocean. And uh, I had never really been in a small boat or, or vessel, as it were, out in the ocean. And, um, and we, I, I kind of, like, like, I got a little scared. Like I, I just had never been in that situation before, and I begin to realize oh, like the open ocean is something that uh, I'm not super comfortable with right now. <laughs> so we get out there, and, and uh, we get to the place where the halibut are. I don't know how they know that, but we, we park, or you, you stop. I don't know what you do, but we're, we're there, and, um, and, and, and it's, you know, again, kind of like this November or October time, and it's pretty windy, and that boat just starts moving, and we are like, rocking back and forth, and, and I, again, having never experienced this before, uh, it wasn't too long until um, I was like, I, I think I need to sit down for a minute. Like, I'm not feeling super great at this point. So uh, I stopped fishing, and I go in, and, and my dad's like, oh, you're going to miss the halibut. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't feel good right now. So, uh, and the captain kind of notices this, and he brings me a five-gallon bucket, and he just says, you know, if you need. Um, and I said, great, great, I hope I don't. And at this point, one of the deckhands, uh, I believe that's what they're called, he comes in, and he's wearing, like, like a stereotypical Alaskan fisherman, these big, like, uh, rubber waders and, a, you know, a stocking cap, and he's in there, and he's got fingerless gloves. And this guy's, like, he is hardcore. And uh, he comes in, and he reaches into his backpack, and he pulls out uh, his lunch. And um, I didn't think much of the lunch. I mean, I was, yeah, he's hungry. He should eat. And so uh, he kind of sits down across on this bench from me, and, uh, you know, I would think he'd pull out like a turkey sandwich or an apple or maybe a you know, PB&J or something. And this guy pulls out a foot-long Reuben. <laughs> if you've ever had a Reuben sandwich, the sauerkraut on that thing is, uh, I mean, it smells. If you like that, it's delicious. But if you don't and you're already seasick and that smell starts wafting through that little cabin... Uh, it was probably about three or four minutes after he pulled out his sandwich that I just start barfing in this bucket. 
And I spent the next probably two hours either in the bucket or uh, lurched over the side of the boat. Like, I just could not handle my, my life it, at that point. <laughs> that sandwich was the grossest smelling thing that I have ever smelled, and especially in that moment. Uh, I mean, I, I was absolutely powerless. There was nothing I could do. I was certainly, I mean, there's eight guys that are fishing and catching halibut. We weren't going to go in. Like, we were not going to stop on a quart of me to go in and, and get better. So I was just there in this little boat rocking back and forth seasick, and there was nothing I could do. And I could remember just being like, oh, I guess I just am here barfing for and <laughs> however long we need to be fishing for. Uh, but it's one of those times, maybe the first time in my life, where I really remember feeling powerless. Like, there is just nothing I could do in this moment. Powerlessness is not a position that I think many of us are accustomed to being in. Powerlessness, in a lot of ways, has long been associated, I think, specifically in our culture for some of the reasons I've already talked about, as maybe a function of weakness, maybe a function of laziness, or maybe even just complacency. But those who do not have power, they're looked down on. They're looked as insignificant or as unimportant in our culture. And yet, I would contend, as I already have, that one of the most visible signs of the incarnation is the powerlessness that Jesus willingly took on. Let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into the text. God, be with us this morning. Lord, uh, I pray uh, in, in our time together as we study your scripture, you would allow us and help us to look inward at our own lives. God, to uh, reflect on maybe the ways that we fall short of the call that you have given us. Would your scripture speak to us? Would it convict us this morning? God, would you prepare our hearts for the message that you desire us to hear? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, like I said a couple of weeks ago, Russ, uh, Russ spoke about the idea of emptying self, and he used a text from Philippians 2. I want to look back at that text, but just one specific thought, one specific line in that text that I think speaks to this idea of Jesus' powerlessness in the incarnation. And it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus himself did not count equality with God something to be grasped. To equate himself with God would be assuming the position of ultimate power. And yet Jesus, God incarnate, took the humble position of humanity. We are so addicted to this idea of power that... <clears throat> I'm not sure we like to think about the utter powerlessness that Jesus came in. God incarnate came as a feeble baby into an occupied land. He lived as a refugee. He spent his life as a poor, itinerant preacher. 
oppressed by the ruling and religious class. And then he quietly suffered and died in a horrific manner. If I were to be asked without knowing the story of Jesus, without knowing what I know of the Christian faith, how God might have come to earth, I'm not sure that that's how I would have imagined it. In fact, pull out your bulletin uh, right now if you have it. I think maybe this is how I would have imagined it. What you see there is Jesus with abs on the bulletin cover. That is the kind of God that I dream up. That is the kind of God that I think through. Powerful God that would come to earth and dominate. Have you ever been in a situation when you've expected one thing but then got a totally different thing? You went into something thinking, okay, I know exactly how this is going to play out, and then it turns out to be something completely different. I started a house project last summer, and uh, Russ and I have both been very, very open with uh, both of our, uh, we are notoriously terrible at house projects. Like, that, is, that just skipped our generation somehow. My dad can fix anything, whether it's a car or like a sprinkler system or a kitchen, like he can just do it all. I have no idea what I'm doing at any point with a house project. But we knew that the siding needed to be redone in our house. And so uh, to save a little bit of money, I thought, okay, this is a project that I can do, certainly. Not by myself, but I can, I can help with this. So we hired my uh, cross-the-street neighbor, Matt, who's a contractor. And Matt graciously said, I will let you work alongside of me, and we'll do this project, and I'll charge you a little bit less. And so um, I, I was thinking, oh, man, siding on a house? We've got a long weekend. This is perfect. We'll bang it out, and then uh, we're good to go, and the siding's going to look fantastic. And uh, I knew very, very quickly when Matt showed up at 7 a.m. to start working. I was not expecting that right away. Wow, we're getting going early here. Uh, he showed up, and he's got a tool belt on, and he's got these, like, uh, I wanted to call them seesaws. That's not what they are. Uh, what are they called? Sawhorses, thank you. Um, yep. He's got those things laid out, and he's got all these different saws out, and, and we're going, and he's got like this boom box that's playing music, and it's like a job site in my front yard. And he's talking, saying things like, hey, Kevin, why don't you go ahead and grab this, or let's take off the fascia, and every time I'm like, hey, Matt, I don't know what fascia is, so why don't you go ahead and let me know what that is, and then I'll start taking it off. <clears throat> And this project, what I thought was going to be like a long weekend, turned into a six-week project of every day after work. Matt would come over, and he was so gracious with me and trying to teach me stuff, and I'm just terrible at this. Um, we ultimately got it. We, well, we got one quarter of our house done, I'm deciding. The other three quarters is still not done. We'll get it done eventually. Um, <laughs> But that was one of those times where I went into this project thinking it was going to be like, oh, man, this is awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to emerge like a guy that knows how to do projects. And I'm just as bad as I was before. Matt saved my bacon in a lot of ways, and the project took way longer than I thought. It, it was, we, we bit off way more than we could chew. It was one of those times where I got in thinking it was going to be one thing, and it turned out to be something completely different. When you truly confront the powerlessness of Jesus, I think it's a situation that's much different than maybe how we thought it would have been. The disciples often struggled to understand Jesus' powerlessness in the same way I believe we struggle to understand it. I believe we struggle to even see the value of why he would come 
in that form, in that way, without power. Richard Rohr says this, In all honesty, once it was on top and fully part of the establishment, the church was a bit embarrassed by the powerless one, Jesus. We had to make his obvious defeat into a glorious victory that had nothing to do with defeat, his or ours. Let's face it, we feel more comfortable with power than with powerlessness. Who wants to be like Jesus on the cross, the very icon of powerlessness? It just doesn't look like a way of influence, a way of success, a way that's going to make any difference in the world. We are such a strange religion. We worship this naked, bleeding loser, crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. But we always want to be winners, powerful, and on top of ourselves. At least until we learn to love the little things and the so-called little people. And then we often see that they are not little at all, but better images of the soul. He came to earth and lived among us. This I think we like. I think we like the idea that Jesus came to earth and lived with us. The fact that he willingly gave up power to do so and modeled this type of life for us, I believe is harder to get behind. This is why we tend to worship and show adoration of the divine aspects of Jesus, his control over the elements, his ability to preach, his ability to heal the sick and raise the dead, his resurrection, his ascension, and the fact that he now sits at the right hand of the throne and that he will come again in glory. These are the things we worship, but the things we talk less about are the places where Jesus was vulnerable, where Jesus was powerless, the fact that his family hid him in another country so that he would not be found and put to death. The reality that he led a mundane and normal life for 30 years. The fact that some of his days left him tired enough to where he had to find space in the boat to take a nap. That when he got tired of people, he had to go and seek quiet refuge. That when he was overcome by anger in the temple, or that the death of a friend led him to tears, that his mom's persistence seemingly changed his mind, that he was betrayed by a close friend, that he pleaded with God in the garden for a different way, or that he willingly took wrongful accusation in the beating and death of a sinner without any resistance whatsoever. You see, these are not things that are powerful. His life was not lived through power. He never tried to control someone. He never assumed a position of power. He never sought to change the circumstances with which he encountered. He was defenseless in every way. And when he did fight, he did not use strength or force or position or power, but instead he brandished the weapons of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. His powerlessness is central to fully understanding who Jesus truly is. And if it's central to understanding who Jesus is, then I believe it's fundamental to how we are to understand our lives. The Gospel of Mark, maybe more so than others, paints a picture of Jesus' humanity, of, of his powerlessness. Doug Frank, who uh, writes a lot of, uh, about uh, the Gospel of Mark in, in his book, The Gentler God, he says this, instead of using big God 
to burnish a little Jesus' credentials. He's using little Jesus to bring a big God down to size. He's getting us ready for the surprise. God is someone small and human like Jesus. In chapter 10 of Mark, right after the transfiguration and the healing of a boy with an evil uh, presence in him, Mark 10 says this, And they were bringing children to him that they might touch him. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Throughout the Gospels, we see the disciples trying to shield Jesus from the insignificant and the vulnerable, this being another one of the uh, examples that we see. It's another instance where I believe the disciples missed the point. And the more I dwell on this passage, the more I think Jesus is instructing us to be like children in that we receive the kingdom of God without power. You see, a child really has no power. They don't really control anything or anyone outside of themselves. They are vulnerable. They're trusting sometimes to a fault. They live with an unquestioned faith. And yet each year with growth, they slowly learn to be more independent, assume more responsibility. They begin to seek power within the bounds of their own experience until they grow into us. Disciples who scramble to keep children away from Jesus. Disciples who are so blinded by their own desire for power that they're constantly missing the point. Jesus calls us to return to the position of a child. To receive the kingdom without power. The incarnation was not simply the sending of his son so that he could be put to death in our place. The incarnation is the ongoing reminder of the posture that we are to assume if we ever want to receive the kingdom. The incarnation is a vision of the power of powerlessness. John Caputo says this, the power of the kingdom is the powerless power to melt hearts that have hardened, to keep hope alive when life is hopeless, to revive the spirits of the dispirited and despairing. Death is turned into life, not by power that overpowers things like the God of uh, omnipotence theology, but by the power of powerlessness. The incarnation changes our lives not with power, but with the quiet call to a different posture. Christ is calling us to a posture of powerlessness. He's calling us to live differently. Not just with the children that we read in Mark 10, but throughout Scripture, we see this call to powerlessness. In fact, it's the foundation of his first and maybe most important public message. If you turn to Matthew 5, you can read along. But he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ begins this public sermon with a call to powerlessness, reminding all listeners that those who live beyond the need for power will be blessed. If our lives are consumed with gaining power, we will miss the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus embodied, everything he teaches, comes back to the idea of emptying self. Before we can truly be open to change, I think we have to ask the sobering question, are you okay with the idea of being powerless? Can you truly accept and respect the idea of God coming in powerlessness and then calling us in the same way? Frank goes on in his book, A Gentler God, to say this, if God cannot straightforwardly micromanage human events so as to rescue the abused child, the tortured prisoner, the cancer victim, neither can God rescue God's very own self incarnated in Jesus. God can and will continue to whisper to the killers as well as the killed, to mourners as well as the mockers. God can and will hang on the giblet in utter solidarity with his son. Helplessly receiving the cruel blows rained down on the naked, dying flesh of the beloved. There is a kind of power in God's whispers, but it is the power of the powerlessness. It changes things, but invisibly, unpredictably, unaccountably, and, from our point of view, unreliably. It is not the kind of power we imagine or wish God to have. See, if you read the Gospels through this lens, if you understand Jesus in this way, this is where the idea of posture begins to make sense. Halter and Smay write a book where they say, the message is what we know, but posture is what we believe and feel. It's one thing to know the message of the incarnation. It's an entirely different thing to live in accordance with it. You see, we can understand the powerlessness of the incarnation, but accepting it and living in powerlessness is a movement of deep, deep maturity. The truth is, in the world with which we live, we have been given power, whether we want it or not, in our places of work, in our homes, the very fact that we are Americans. We have assumed different positions of power, and we cannot get away from this reality. But there is a fundamental difference between someone who seeks and desires power than one who accepts and responds to power that has been entrusted to them. And that difference is posture. The first carries an error of dominance, of greediness, of pride and selfishness and control, while the second postures with joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those who strive for power believe that achievement leads to value. They believe importance comes from who and what they control. They feel entitled to that which they do not have. They harbor bitterness 
when relationships or circumstances are unfavorable. They position and jockey themselves to move ahead, to move ahead of others. And yet those who live lives of powerlessness extend love to all people. They find contentment in every situation. They freely give and ask for forgiveness. They live present in the moment. They are graceful with their words and actions. They humbly acknowledge their place and understand nothing of eternal value can be gained through force or dominance. Christ is clear that the kingdom is not moved, nor are our lives transformed by power. The kingdom is moved, and our lives are continually transformed through powerlessness. It's the life Christ modeled, and it's the call he places on us all. I'll close with a, a quick story from uh, the Old Testament in Exodus. <clears throat> Moses has led the Hebrews out of Egypt, and they're now with their backs against the Red Sea. And Pharaoh has mobilized his army, and they're barreling down on them. Their backs are against the sea, and there are no options left at this point. There is no way the Hebrews can overtake Pharaoh's army. And the people begin to question their situation. Their fear begins to take over. They begin to wish for power over the circumstance, power over the situation. God, why did you lead us here? Moses, why are we here? I wish we could be back where we were before. And they plead with God to return them to at least when they had a little bit of power in Egypt. And it's at this moment that I think Moses has an incredible understanding of the importance of powerlessness. And he turns to the people and in Exodus 14, 14 says this, The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. This is an instruction of posture. It's an instruction to let go of power. He didn't say, we need to do this, we need to do that. This is how we stand against Pharaoh. Instead, he said, be still. Release power. Posture yourself in a different way. Moses, in the same way that Jesus does, is telling people to posture themselves differently, to let go of their need for power, and to let God be God. This was the life that Jesus modeled, and it's the posture that I believe he calls us to live out. We're going to continue to worship this morning for a few more songs. My encouragement to you, my prayer for all of us, is that we do not worship in power, but that we practice the exercise of letting go of those places where we're holding on to power in our lives. That we posture ourselves in a way that trusts the only true change can come is when we are powerless. Would you pray with me?